You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. Okay, my name's Matt. I'm one of our pastors and leaders here at Grace. Um, Some of my former students over here in the grass were, as I was walking up, they were asking me, are you feeling old? I told I haven't even reached my prime yet, so they need to just settle down, kids. Anyway, um, I love those guys. Um, if you if you're new, I just want to also welcome you. It's great that we're here um, on the lawn together. It's been a while since I've been up here to speak, so I'm excited about that. Um, we've been going through the book of Matthew, and today it's going to be a little different. We don't have screens with scripture. I'm just going to kind of preach through the. The, the chapter of Matthew 21, because in the book of Matthew, we're in kind of a unique spot here. I don't know if you know much about the gospel of Matthew, but the first two-thirds of the gospel is dedicated to, from Jesus' birth till, till this last week, he's like 33. The last third of the gospel focuses on the last week of his life, so it's going to get really intense now. The shadow of the cross is looming, and so... Matthew um, has been at work through his gospel trying to show us who this Jesus is, right? He, He wants to show us that Jesus is not some new rabbi, but he's the continuation and the fulfillment of the entire biblical story between God and his people. Jesus, he says, is the Messiah. He's that, the long awaited one that the Old Testament pointed to. Matthew says, this is him. Jesus is a new authoritative teacher like Moses. He literally speaks the words of God. But Matthew says he's more than that. He he is Emmanuel. He is, in fact, God with us. And so as we've been walking through this gospel, we've seen that, excuse me, um, we've seen Jesus actually bringing the kingdom of God uh, into the lives of people. And and lame are walking. Blind people are seeing. um, the, the, The gospel being preached to the poor and the marginalized. All the things that the Old Testament said that the Messiah would do. They're all happening. And, and many are, are responding in, in excitement. But there are those who, who reject him, especially the leaders, the authorities in Israel. And we've seen this conflict building. And, and so the question is, how is this conflict going to be resolved? What's going to happen? Lots of different expectations about Jesus. There's some that are excited that think he's going to come in and give them their prominent place um, on, on a national level. He's going, to, he's going to stomp out the oppression of Rome, and they're finally going to be free. But the leaders of Israel, they think he's a fraud. They think he's a joke. They, they're, they're threatened by him. They want him gone. And so they're trying to figure out how they're going to do that. And even Jesus' own disciples, remember a couple weeks ago, Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Peter, who do you say that I am? Peter says, man, you're the, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. But even saying that, Peter's not sure how, what that looks like in day-to-day life. So even, even the disciples are a little confused. So Jesus begins teaching that he is a Messiah that's coming to suffer and die for his people. He's, he's the Messianic king that, that's coming to, to reign as a servant, one who would lay down his life not only for Israel but the nations. And so we've seen Jesus teaching about this upside-down kingdom. In his kingdom, you gain honor by serving others. In the kingdom of God, instead of revenge on your enemies, you, you forgive and you pray for them. 
and true wealth is achieved through generosity. It's completely different than the way the world operates. And so in order to follow this servant Messiah, you must become a servant. So that's where we've been today, Matthew 21. Okay, I'm, I'm basically, we can't read it all. You guys have been here for a long time and you're already heating up. So I'm going to basically walk through the chapter and then we're going to focus on one of the parables he tells at the end. So you guys game for that? I can't hear. Are you game? Okay, let's go. Okay, Matthew 21. I'm calling this a clash of the kingdoms, okay? It's Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of God, versus the kingdom that these leaders in Israel have set up. So it's Passover time. And if you know anything about Passover, this is where the Jewish people every year get together and celebrate the fact that they were liberated years ago from Egypt, from bondage. Remember they put the Passover, the, the blood over the door, and the, the death angel passed over, and God rescued them and delivered them from their oppression. Every year, to this day, they celebrate this. And so, here come Jesus and his disciples. They're coming into Jerusalem, the city of the great king. Right? You remember the story that the disciples went out, they got this donkey, and, and here comes Jesus, and he's riding into town, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah. Matthew's all about fulfillment of prophecy. So he says, you see that? That's what Zechariah said was going to happen back in chapter 9 when he said your king comes victorious and righteous riding on the, on the colt of a donkey. He's a humble king. And, and a king on a donkey for some was a contradiction to terms. He should be on a war horse or a chariot or something, but he's not. He's a king that's bringing peace. And the crowds are hailing him as the Messiah. They're all shouting, hail to the son of David. And, and Jesus accepts that title. He doesn't reject, he accepts that title. But he didn't interpret it the way that many of his contemporaries understood that title. And so they come into town. The first place Jesus goes is to the temple. And he, and he goes in there with all the authority of God. And he starts turning over the money cha changing tables and just, just thrashing the place. He, he literally bringing the sacrifices to a halt. Could you imagine what the authorities are thinking? He's acting like a king. He walks in there like he owns the place because he is, in fact, the king. One greater than the temple is, in fact, here. And so he condemns what's going on. He calls it a den of thieves. We all know a den of thieves is where thieves get together and they, they, they look at their loot and their exploits and they plot further corruption. Jesus says that's what's going on here. I mean, this, this, my, my house should be a house of prayer, he says. Don't you guys read your Bibles? It stands written, my house is a house of prayer. And so the primary purpose of the temple had been lost to a frenzy of religious activity. And Jesus condemns their mismanagement. He condemns their dereliction of duty. And he's coming strong. And in, in the midst of all this happening, the, the blind and lame come in and start walking up to him, and Jesus begins healing them. Those who are ostracized and, 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 and unclean come to Jesus, and he makes them clean. And the kids, the kids start singing. They start singing Hosanna. They start singing praises. And, and all this is going on. Picture the scene, right? People are probably scrambling around to get their money. Sorry, stay with the mic. Uh, they're scrambling around to get their money, right? They're freaking out. People are being healed. The, the children just can't, can't contain themselves. They start singing the praises of God. And the religious leaders are indignant, the text says. Angry, furious, rage inside. 
They're, they're not celebrating with the kids the, 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 the fact that the kingdom of God has come among men. They're angry. And they go up to Jesus and they say, do you hear what the children are saying? And I, I, I love his response. It's priceless. He's like, yes, I, I, I do. And again, don't you Bible scholars read your Bibles? And then he quotes Psalm 8, from the lips of children and infants, Lord, you have called forth your praise. They have nothing to say. And they leave, Jesus and his disciples leave, they go to Bethany, and they stay the night. Now, Matthew isn't as concerned as some of the other gospel writers for the exact timing. He's just putting this whole story together. So some say it's they were gone for a day or two, or this happened Monday. We're not concerned about that. This is what happened when Jesus showed up. So the next day they go back. Now this weird story happens on the way back, and um, it talks about this fig tree. So Jesus is walking back, and, and I don't know if he met up. I don't know why he didn't eat with his disciples. The text says that Jesus was hungry, and he sees this fig tree, and there's leaves all over it. So there should be figs on the tree. But he walks up to the tree, and there's, there's nothing there. The fig tree is bare. And so Jesus curses this tree. He says, may you never bear fruit again. It's the weirdest story. It's the only other time, the only other time Jesus cursed anything was it was the pigs, right? So never humans, just the, that tree and those pigs that ran into the, to the water. And so his disciples are amazed because instantly, instant, or instantly or within a short amount of time, that, that tree, those, it, it withered. That tree was false advertisement. It should have had figs, even early figs on it. Maybe not the late ones, but the early figs. They should have been there. And that's a picture of what's going on in Israel. On the outside, everything looks good. Lots of religious activity. But inside, it's dead. It's rotting, as we're going to see in the next few weeks. Jesus is going to call them out and show them, expose them and show exactly what they're doing. God's people, partnering with him, are called to produce fruit. That's what Jesus is getting at. And so the disciples are wondering what's going on. And, and, and basically he's saying, listen, your life, sh if, if you're connected with God, your life should, should be producing righteousness and justice founded in prayer, receiving the power of God to do that. So they continue on. And Jesus goes back into the temple, and he's back in the temple courts, and he starts preaching. He starts teaching again. Again, <laughs> like he owns the place because he is the king. And so he goes in there, and, and here they come. Here they come again, staunch. All their phylacteries, all their stuff. They, I mean, just to the nines, they're dressed to make sure everybody knows who they are. And they come up to, up to Jesus, and they say, essentially, who do you think you are? Where do you get the authority to do all these things that you're doing? Man, you didn't check with us. This is our place. We're the authority here, not you. So Jesus goes full on Jesus on him. I love it. He says, well, let me ask you a question real quick. You answer mine, I'll answer yours. Okay? Great uh, rhetorical strategy, by the way. He's like, yeah, let's, you know, you, you know what's going on. Let's, let's do this. And so he says, remember John the Baptist? Who's, what was he all about? Was, he, was his message of repentance, was that from heaven? Was that a God thing? Or was that just John doing something on his own? Of course, now at this point, they're not going to answer him because if they say it was from God, he's going to be like, well, why didn't you submit? Why didn't you repent? 
But if it was for man, they're, they're, again, these guys are man-pleasers. They're afraid of the crowd. The crowd thinks Jesus is a prophet. And so they say, we don't know. Exposed. It had to be really hard for them to say, we don't know. They know everything. But they don't know this. And if they don't know who John, what John was all about, how are they possibly going to know who Jesus was, what he, where his authority came from? I personally think they were spiritually dishonest. I think they're, they're continuing to harden their hearts. Remember weeks ago we talked about the, the unforgivable, unforgivable sin. The only unforgivable sin is when you see the power of God working over and over and over and you resist the Holy Spirit and he keeps coming to you in his mercy and grace and you say no, no, and you get hard. That's these guys. And at this point, Jesus looks at him and he says, let, let, me tell you, let me tell you a couple parables here. Let me, let me tell you a few stories. Remember, parables are these short stories that take a familiar idea and cast it alongside an unfamiliar idea in order to make the, the idea that's a little foggy come into, come into clarity so they can understand it. Now, we don't have time to dig into all of them. There's three of them. Um, so... You can have do a little homework later, but all three of these parables, they work together to communicate the, the who, the how, and the why, and what the result will be if Israel's leaders reject Jesus and the kingdom that he's come to inaugurate. And so, so these parables are familiar. Remember, the first one is about a father had two sons. Okay, so this dad, and he comes to his sons, and he says, hey, guys, I need you to go work in the family vineyard today. And the first son says, no, I'm not going. But something happens. He, ch they, he changes his mind. He repents, and he ends up going. Now, the second son says, oh, yeah, Dad, you know me. I'm always there. I'll go. I'll go. But something happens to him, maybe a hardening, and he decides not to go. And so Jesus says, you guys are like the rebellious son. You said you would go. You said you would serve the Lord. You said you would honor the, the Lord's righteousness and justice, but, but you're not doing that. You got hard. That's why the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom ahead of you. They said no initially, but they repented. And they responded to the mercy and grace of God. The second parable is the parable that we're going to look at today. Is, is Jesus telling in parable form what's going to happen in the moment as these leaders reject him? And the third parable is the parable of the wedding banquet where Jesus talks about the rejection of the messengers that he's going to send after him. And all these parables, they, expo they expose and they're, they're exploring what's going on in the hearts and minds and actions of these leaders as they reject the parable. So verse, verse 33, if you're following along, or just listen, whatever, it's fine. Chapter 21, verse 33, Jesus looks at them, remember, who are you, where do you get your authority? Well, let, let me tell you another parable, he says. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, and he put a wall around it, he dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower, and then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. Okay, so this is very common in that day, it's like an investment property got some guy who's got the funds. He comes in. He, he builds this, this great vineyard. It's great, great winery, right? I mean, he's, he digs a wine, uh, wine press. He, he puts a tower so he can keep watch on everything. He builds a hedge, keeps all the riffraff out. He does everything. Meticulously, he sets it up. He funds the whole enterprise, and he hands it over to these farmers that are going to work for him. Okay? Verse 34. 
Their job is to produce fruit, right? That's why he hired them. So verse 34, when the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect its fruit. Okay, so who's doing the work here? Shout it out. The farmers, okay? Who owns the vineyard? The other guy, right? The, the, the investment guy, the guy with the money, the guy who set it all up. Right, so, so the owner. So they, they essentially worked for him, and I'm sure there was a contract or something that went down. So it's, it's fair, it's just, it's a, it's a great deal. Everybody's happy. So verse 35, the owner sends his servants to pick up some of the fruit, get his portion. The farmers, or the tenants, it says, in some, uh, they seized his servants, they beat one, they killed another, and they stoned a third. Now, wait a second. What is going on here? These guys entered into a, a, a contract with this guy. There's now, now there's like this crazy uprising on the farm. It's like a, like a Quentin Tarantino film. All of a sudden, it's getting bloody. It, it's just out of nowhere. I mean, what happened? So what's the landowner going to do at this point? Well, he says, okay, um, it's really intense, but I, I guess I'll send more servants. Um, a larger group might, might change the outcome. So verse 36, then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Blood fest on the farm. This is horrifying. The farmers are killing the owner's servants methodically as they, as they come. They're in full rebellion. And I, I, as, I'm, as we're reading, I, I don't know what happened. I don't know what changed. Verse 37, last of all, he sent his son. These guys, these guys are messed up, but they will respect my son. Now, the son had the most authority of all. He literally represented the father in the estate. There's no way they won't hear him, this owner's thinking. He has full authority. Verse 38, but when the tenants or the farmers saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Let's kill him. Let's take his inheritance. So they took him, they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. Now, I don't know if they assumed that the dad was dead, the owner was dead, and for some reason if they killed him, they'd be able to take their land. I, I don't know. I mean, it's a parable, so we can't really get lost in the speculation, but something happened. How did these guys go from signing a contract, making an agreement with this landowner, to killing all of his envoys that he sends, and then finally killing his son so that they can take this vineyard? Somehow their, their thinking is, it belongs to us. So what shifted? What changed in their hearts? Somehow these, these farmers think that the vineyard belongs to them. And the more they think about it, they descend into that delusion that it's theirs. And the result is, is murder. The result is greed, entitlement. None of it's theirs. They're probably using the owner's tools. He probably set booths up for them to live in. None of it's theirs. But they think it is, and they think it should be. And then Jesus finishes telling the parable, and he drops a question on him, and he says, Therefore, verse 40, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants, those farmers? Now, he doesn't answer. 
I love it. He just he lets them answer. What do you guys think's just? What do you guys think's fair? Verse 41, they respond. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of crop at harvest time. In other words, they say, these guys should face justice. And the vineyard's going to be rented to somebody who is actually going to produce the fruit for the owner. Because that's the whole point. The fruit's going to happen. The first farmers got lost. They forgot what they were there for. They lost their sight of their mission. And the owner's going to get rid of them and he's going to, he's going to grab a new people that, that will produce fruit and that will do what they've agreed to do. So do we understand what Jesus is saying here? Let's, let's see. What does the vineyard represent? Anybody? I'll do the first one. It's the people of Israel. Okay. Who's the owner? You speak up. It's the Lord. It's the Lord. It's God. Who are the farmers in this parable? The religious leaders. Right? They, they, they said they would produce fruit. They're not producing fruit. Who, who are the servants that are sent to him? They represent the prophets. Down through the ages, God continued to send his word to his people. And who's the son? That's an easy one. Hebrews 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Jesus literally is the embodiment of the father. Our students, we talk about all the time. Jesus is God in a bond. It's who he is. And so Matthew is presenting Jesus as the culmination of God calling out to his people to enact justice and righteousness, but all there is is injustice and unrighteousness. And Jesus is, is standing there. This is, what's, this is what's ironic about the whole thing. He's standing there telling them what they're about to do to him. They're going to drag him outside the city. Even more irony. You know why they're going to drag him and kill him outside the city? Because they don't want it to be unclean for their religious ceremonies. He's the Lord. And so Jesus said to them for the third time, don't you religious scholars and your Bible teachers read your Bibles. And he quotes Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. This whole Psalm, Psalm 118, Jesus had the whole thing in his head. It's about th this, this one who uh, is oppressed by his enemies. He's, he's crushed, he's beaten down, and he cries out to God. And God in his mercy not only restores him and sets him up, but he vindicates him. And this, this rejected one that these, these, these uh, leaders in Israel, they're, they're, they're rejecting the, the, the one that actually God is saying, no, 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 no. That is the one. That is the stone. He is the rock that I will build my church on. And it's almost like the father saying, listen, um, he doesn't look like much at first glance. He's not like David. He's not this good-looking big guy, right? He's not like Barry, just, you know, got that chisel. No, he's not like that. 
he's just this guy who, who the scripture tells us he didn't have anything on the outside that, that drew us to him. There was nothing in his appearance that we say, oh, I want to hang out with that guy. He's just an ordinary average guy. But it's like the father saying, no, 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 watch him. Look at the way he treats everybody as they've been created in the image of God. Listen to what he says. Be changed by him. He's the one that you reject. So, so in both of these parables, we see that the leaders are calling what God calls good evil, and God is calling what they call evil and rejected good. They're, they're under a strong delusion. And it's been going on for at least 700 years, right? Isaiah, in Isaiah 5, he tells the story about a, about a, a, a vineyard. And it's the same thing. The owner comes to look for, for the fruits of righteousness and justice, and there isn't any. The grapes stink, he says. Ezekiel talks about the, these worthless shepherds that should have been feeding the people of God, should have been caring for the people of God, but they're exploiting them. The same thing is going on here. Murderous hearts. So what does it all mean? Verse 43, Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Now the leaders of Israel, they were called to steward and mediate the place where humanity came to meet with God. That's what the temple was all about. Come, receive the forgiveness of God. He sing the song, sing praises to him, worship, hear the words of God, be encouraged. That's what the temple was about. Experience the righteousness and justice for everybody. The temple was, the, 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 the leadership, Israel itself was supposed to be a light to the nations, but it turned in on themselves. And instead of being a light to the nations, they were, they, they were rejecting people from the outside. They became pious. It was all about them. They had the most privileged position ever. And they blew it. And Jesus is calling them to account. And Jesus says the kingdom of God is being removed from you. And God is going to do a whole new thing. He's going to build this new, new temple. Right? Remember in John 2 when Jesus says, um, destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days? He's talking about his body. That's what God's going to do. He's going to build this new temple around the, the, the cornerstone who is actually Jesus. It's not going to be visible uh, building like we have over here. It's going to be people that, that come to the Messiah, that receive his forgiveness, and that walk in the new, newness of life. And he's not saying all of Israel's done either, okay? we got Romans 11. Read that if you're confused. But um, what he's saying is, is he is going to build... Jews, Gentiles, Greeks, males, slaves, free. Every person is invited to the kingdom. Every person. And so in verse 44, this wraps up. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard the parables, they knew he was talking about them. Someone once described a parable this way. I don't know exactly what it means, but I know I don't like it. And it's like when my grandpa used to tell me, hey, Matt, you're sharp as a marble, kid. One day I, whoa, one day I actually got that. And I'm like, hey, wait a second. It's almost like these guys are calling down the condemnation on themselves. And they're like, whoa, 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 he's talking about us. And they looked for a way to arrest him, the text says, but they were afraid of the crowds. These guys are man pleasers. 
right? They, 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 they got to keep their power. It's their power. It's their authority. It's their place. So Jesus comes and he warns them. He tells them, exposes their mismanagement of God's kingdom. Something happened in their hearts. They reject the cornerstone, but, but listen, they're, they're going to end up killing Jesus. But listen, God's doing something marvelous here. He's going to reverse that by raising the son from the dead and building a people, a new church around his son. So they're no longer, and we know 70 AD, I mean, that temple was sacked and that was gone. But Jesus, God is doing something marvelous in their eyes. So, so what does it mean for us today? Let's, let's wrap up because you're getting warm, I can tell. Um, because Jesus isn't talking to you and me here. Right? I mean, he's, he's, he's not even talking to his disciples at this point. He's talking to the religious leaders of Israel. But, but here's the key. What is God's purpose in the world? It's all about people that come around him and produce fruit. Right? Bring righteousness and justice to the nations. Be a light to the, to, to the nations to point people back to God. It's all about... God, God's mission is all about restoring and redeeming a people who have been separated from him by our sin. That's what he's always been about. And, and isn't that the way Matthew ends his book? Remember in Matthew 28, we saw this last Easter, but all authority, Jesus says, on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go into all the nations, right? Make, make disciples of them, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and teach them to obey every, teach them to produce fruit. That's what he's saying. God's looking for people that will come around his son and produce the kind of fruit in our world that he desires. Justice, kindness, mercy, righteousness. Israel's failure becomes kind of a parable to us, though. Two things I want to say briefly, and then a few more things, but... Number one, as I look at this parable, the first thing I see is God is patient. I mean, the patience of this landowner, I mean, you can read it and think, gosh, this guy's kind of an idiot, right? I mean, they should be armed. But, but no, it's showing how patient he is, and he continues to send the word, turn back. You guys got it wrong. I want to give you another chance. I want to heal you. Ezekiel tells us that God doesn't, he isn't delighted in judgment. No, he wants those that are involved in wickedness to repent. He wants a change of heart, and he wants to help you do that. He's patient. And God is in control. Humanity's evil will never end up or upend God's good plan. Not in your life, not in my life, and certainly not here. Evil doesn't get the last word. Somehow, somehow, uh, these guys forgot that their very lives were a gift from God. The very breath that they're breathing is a gift. Our lives are a gift. And if we, just think about this this week, if we ever forget that our lives good, bad, all of it. It's Our lives are a gift from God. He owes us nothing. Nothing. If we forget that, our calling 
to partner with him produce fruit. It's a gift. But if we ever forget that, what happens is, is uh, we end up embracing that same delusion that they did. That somehow God owes us, we're entitled to the things we have, our stuff, our homes. We're, we're uh, entitled to the things we've been entrusted with. This is our church. Right? I mean, we, we can be just like them. Which leads to a life that's ultimately characterized by injustice, selfishness, resulting in destruction and great loss. And I just want to say a word to our leadership here at Grace. This is a stern warning for us. And I don't care if you, you lead the parking team, if you lead sound, if you're on our preaching team, an elder, you're serving in the... Any position of leadership, you're teaching a third grade class. If we ever forget that our lives and our, our, the, the gift of leadership here is, is a privilege. If we ever forget that, and we ever forget that it comes with responsibility, it, it's, it needs to be founded on the word of God. And so everything we do here, our policies, our practices, our, our programs, whatever, if ever we get away from, from what the word of God is calling us to, man, we're in danger too of being removed. We can't ever forget that. This is why we hound Sometimes you're like, okay, you said that last week. But yes, there is no substitute for the word of God in our lives. There is not. Everything we have is a gift. Let's get real practical. Think about your job. Yeah, and I know, yeah, I work hard. Yes, you work hard, but, but even the fact that you have a job, that, that, even that is a gift. That you're in a place where you can have a job and make money and provide for your family and, and, and help those in need however you do it. Uh, one, of my, one of my best friends, he retired a couple weeks ago. He'd been working this job for, gosh, I think 38 years or something, driving all over the state. And, and it's funny, when we talked about his job, we talk about some of the things, but you know what he always, you know what he usually talked about? He talked about the people. He talked about this guy down here. He talked about how this guy was, was really messing up his life, but he was listening and trying to give him advice. He talked about um, this other friend that, that had some weird ideas about Jesus, so he was trying to kind of help him think through those. His whole life was about producing the fruit of the kingdom, even, even in his job. I mean, I mean, that's what we're called to. Our jobs are a gift, but ultimately the goal of our jobs are to produce the fruit of the kingdom. Yes, we provide for our families, but ultimately, we, that's our calling no matter where we go. It's a gift and it's our responsibility. And our families, think about your family. Man, some of us have some rough families. Okay? I'm probably the rough one. They're looking at me like, hey, man, they're sitting over there. Yeah, you, Dad. Um, but no, we've got some messed up families. But those families are a gift. And we forget that. Our kids, we get tired. We're like, ah, oh, this is, no. These, those kids are a blessing in your life. They're a gift from God. And our responsibility as followers is to produce the fruit of patience and kindness and forgiveness and, and all those things within our families. And, and when we blow it, to go back to the Lord, to, to go back to them first and then go to the Lord and ask for forgiveness and empowerment to do it right. Our families are a gift. We can't ever forget that. Now listen, we're going to wrap up here. But I've been, I've been wrestling with God. I've been wrestling with God over the tragic loss of my son-in-law, who was senselessly killed six months ago by an impaired driver. 
I haven't, I haven't talked to you guys since then, but I, I want to just say this, number one, for my family, Fisher family, my daughter, thank you guys for the way you've loved us and helped us walk through the darkest time of our life. I just want to thank you. It means everything to us. But I've been wrestling with God over that. And this passage actually exposed something in me. Um, because he was my son-in-law. He was, he was Rhonda's son-in-law. He was my daughter's husband, Ella's dad. He was Adam and Laura's boy. He was ours. He was part of our family. And it just kills me. And as horrible as that situation is, and I don't want to play, play, downplay the evil that, that took him at all. I'm not downplaying that for one moment. But I've got a choice here. And I can either grow angry, bitter, and distant from God, or I can realize that even his very life was a gift. He lived it as a gift. Okay, but it was a gift to, to me. I mean, I love that gift. It was a gift run. He was a gift the way he loved my daughter and his, and his daughter, even for only a few years. The joy that he brought the Fisher family growing up as a little boy, he was a gift. And so we can't ever forget that because God has done something marvelous in our eyes and, and he's taken the, the worst thing that could happen, death itself, and he's reversed it in the person of Jesus Christ. And I know that we will be together again one day, and I hang on to that. But listen, God owes us nothing. But he loves to bless his people. He loves to bless his family. When we feel like he does, he owes us, man. We embrace the delusion. This is why I hate the term, hey, you know, you deserve that. You don't deserve that. By the grace of God, we got it. And if we, we don't come to Jesus and allow him to expose those those dark recesses of our hearts, right? These guys could have repented. They didn't. We can. Allow them to heal us. Show us where we're hanging on. It's mine. And help us to walk in his grace. If we don't do that, two things will happen. Number one, we'll destroy ourselves, and then we'll destroy the very people around us that we love, the very last thing that we want to do. So, Father... Give us eyes to see today what you are saying to us and give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name. As we move to the bread and the cup today, if you have your communion, go ahead and get that out. The worship team's going to come back up here. Um, we're going to be partaking of the rejected body of the Son of God. That's what this represents. The blood that he spilt was poured out for the forgiveness of sins for all nations, for all of us. If we receive him, we confess that he is the Lord, receive his forgiveness, and walk in the newness of life. That's, that's what we're called to do. We're called to produce fruit, and it begins with taking in um, his sacrifice for us. Some of us need to confess today areas where... Uh, we're not doing it well. We should be producing fruit and we're not. Or we've got some going bad on the vine. And we need to confess that and say, help us, Lord. He wants to help us. He wants us to be, be successful. 
He has no delight in judgment, none. Some of us need to be encouraged today because you're doing well, man. Keep going. It's worth it. The sacrifices you're making, the, the way that you're loving on your family, man, keep doing that. It's worth it. And some of you need to come to Jesus for the first time and say, Jesus, I need your forgiveness. Life is all about me. I'm the only authority I ever have in my life, and it's not working out. And you need to submit your life to his. Some of you are there today. Just ask him. Forgive me, Lord. Show me how to walk in the newness of life that you provide. Let us eat and drink the mercies of God together. Take the bread, drink the wine. Thank you for joining us for Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church here in Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net.